Hi, I'm Bob Ekblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple, Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. You know, I've been calling this uh, podcast Disciple for a long time, and uh, it's because I am so inspired reading the Gospels and just uh, really looking at Jesus and trying to learn from him, being his student. And, and I just find that every one of these stories that I'm reading, they just come alive each time, you know, kind of freshly. Today, I want to talk about uh, like part two of the healing at Bethesda. And this is part two because I did another one called Seeing and Doing Like Jesus. And um, Gracie and I just flew in from Auckland yesterday, where we spent a week. And prior to that, a week in Melbourne. We were doing prayer ministry trainings and just uh, going around from place to place and preaching and teaching and had a fantastic time in both both places and uh, did this Bible study in several places where all kinds of new insights sort of came to the forefront. And uh, let's just look briefly at, at John chapter 5, verse 1. It starts out, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After what things? Well, if we look prior to this in chapter 4, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. But it says in chapter 4, verse 1, that when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, um, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to go and pass through Samaria. So this is um, the famous story. This is the, the kind of the prelude to the famous story about Jesus's encounter with a woman at the well. And interestingly, um, so Jesus goes from Jerusalem through Samaria to Galilee. And when he arrives in Samaria, rather than going straight into the town of Sychar, um, which is Shechem, the ancient town of Shechem, Jesus goes to the margins of that place. And, uh, and it's there that he has this encounter at the well with a woman who's going out to draw water. And right after that, we have this the Samaritan community welcoming Jesus into their village and all kinds of people coming to faith. And then that's followed immediately by the story of the nobleman, the official who had a son who um, was in Cana, I mean, was in Capernaum. And, and the official goes up to find Jesus and to bring him down to Capernaum. And Jesus uh, tells the man, go, your son lives. And the man believes the word that Jesus uh, gave him and starts off. And when he when he gets near the bottom of the mountain, he encounters the servants and they tell him that um, it was at the very hour that Jesus had said, your son lives, that, um, that his boy recovered. And so he himself believes and his whole household believes. So we have the belief of the Samaritan community, the belief of of this man and his whole household. And um, and then now we have Jesus, who's in Galilee, um, after those things had happened, deciding he's gonna go up to Jerusalem and there's a feast of the Jews. But as Jesus has already modeled, when he, instead of going right into the town, he goes to the margins of that town to the well. Here we have Jesus going um, by the to the sheep gate where there's a pool where there's these five porticos, these five porches. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And um, we talked about this before, about how they were all waiting for the water 
uh, the moving of the waters because the angel of the Lord was thought to come at certain seasons into the pool and stir up the water. And whoever got in first, they'd be healed from, from whatever disease they had. And we learned about how there was a man there who'd been ill for 38 years. And, um, and here we see Jesus approaching and, um, he's not identifying himself. He's just, uh, he's not mentioned as being with his disciples. He's seems like he's solo. And he, uh, saw that this man was lying there and he knew that he'd already been there a long time in that condition. And, um, in here, right after this text in uh, verse 19, Jesus uh, has told us or tells us later, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son does, these things the Son, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Um, and um, anyway, and I think this is so powerful because really here we're, we're, we're told after the fact that that the father was showing Jesus, um, you know, this was indicating to Jesus in some way, communicating to him and leading him to go uh, to these five porches to Bethesda, you know, the pool and uh, where all these people were laying, who were stuck. And, um, and so Jesus is just doing, we assume what the father had shown him and, and the will of the father. And, um, uh, and when Jesus saw him lying there, and then um, it, it says that he said to the man, do you wish to get well? So what would it be like if you were practicing this, this very sort of activity of Jesus? You were modeling your own um, engagement, your, your actions after what Jesus is doing here. Like, how would Jesus know to go to the pool of Bethesda? And how would he know... Um, how to ask that, you know, to ask this question, do you wish to get well? I mean, it could have been Jesus's own analysis as he, after all, he is Jesus, the son of God. However, um, how would you know, you know, what to say, what to ask? Um, I think of, um, of a time, so many times when I felt prompted to ask somebody a question and later it, it appeared that it was really the Holy Spirit that was pushing me to do that. And, um, and I think we need to, instead of just reading this as, as, as sort of, uh, in a heroic way where we're seeing Jesus as a hero and far, far, far beyond what any of us could do or would do, I think we need to really let the, the story of Jesus, um, inspire our imaginations and help us, help put us in touch with the ways that we're, uh, you know, we're being led and we're being prompted, you know, by Jesus. And um, so a question that I have for myself is, have I ever heard that voice in my own uh, thought life? Do you want to get well? You know, have I ever um, been in a state where I was just, uh, you know, really unhappy and just really struggling, maybe really angry or full of anxiety? And um, have I heard that thought, that voice, do you want to get well? You know, what are some of the conditions that we ourselves have that we've been struggling with? Maybe, maybe for 38 years, maybe longer. You know, do we, um, do we sense the spirit coming to us? Like 
when God came to Cain and um, when Cain was angry because God had embraced Abel's offering rather than his Cain's offering. And he was angry. And God says, why are you angry, Cain? And, um, you know, do we notice uh, the questions of God being asked of us? This is prayer. This is part of prayer. It's half of prayer, more than half of prayer. God's speaking to us. You know, we too often think of prayer as, as just ourselves communicating to God. But prayer is two-way conversation. It's two-way communication. So are there situations that you are struggling with? You know, chronic anxiety, a mental health disorder, a, um, a physical ailment. And um, this is a question that could be asked also in a Bible study. And I have asked this. But think about it for yourself personally. Are there, um, are there situations that, uh, where maybe you don't want to be well? You know, maybe you prefer to, to be, have an identity as a victim or, and to be, uh, fall into self-pity or uh, go into a depression that would cause you to isolate or uh, choose to engage in an addictive behavior. And, um, and you're not ready to give that up. And so it's a good question. Do, do I want to be well? Do you want to give up that addiction? Do you want to have an end to this depression that is cyclical or, or regular um, or chronic? You know, do you want that back pain to go away? Do you want your hearing to recover? Do you want to be a person who prays for healing rather than someone who's always paralyzed and afraid? Um, and we, we need to be able to answer the question and maybe our answer would be, no, I really don't. And and maybe Jesus would then come back at us and say, well, well, why? And um, But in this case, the man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So the man um, has an excuse. And we often have excuses, like I'm angry because um, people are unjust and they're unfair and the world's a mess. And there are perpetrators. There are super rich people who are oppressing the poor. There are people that could care less about global heating and, and are just going about living a consumer lifestyle without any conscience. There are people denying this or that, or there are people that are, that are nationalists and about Christian nationalism and just seem blind to it. And we have excuses for hating, for, you know, for dis dissing people, for seeing ourselves as superior. And, um, and so this man is practicing something that's that's so common, you know, just uh, deflecting um, responsibility and casting blame. Um, so Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. You know, have you ever heard Jesus address you regarding um, an area of your own brokenness, your own sickness, your own um, addictive behavior? You know, where it was like a word that just came into your conscious awareness and you suddenly felt um, empowered maybe to actually change. Um, of course, it seems like you need to want to change. Apparently, this man did want to change. He'd actually, actually he'd been there 38 years or however long at that pool and watching all kinds of people get the healing when the water was stirred, people that got there first ahead of him. Okay, but um, how do we discern when Jesus is empowering us? 
And in this case, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. I think of myself um, back in 2019, actually 2018, it was November of 2018, and I had been diagnosed with um, lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, earlier in the year, like in July. And I had, um, you know, it was just devastating news to get that news that I had a big, this big tumor in my abdomen. And, um, you know, um, there was a lot of things that happened, a lot of tests, you know, bone marrow to biopsies, you know, biopsies of the tumor, blood tests, just this huge process that lasted several months until they determined exactly what my condition was. And, and they said I needed to, to have chemotherapy. And then um, that would have blocked me from, and Gracie from traveling to numerous places where we were offering our certificate in transformational ministry at the margins courses. We had plans to go to Morocco, to Paris, to, um, you know, to Tanzania, lots of different places. And, um, and so to have this news that we were going to have to cancel everything and just get ready to go through chemo and possibly be very sick and need, need to be near a hospital, it was devastating. And when the opportunity was offered to me to uh, participate in a clinical trial, a drug, uh, you know, trial where I could take a pill a week and I could be on the road and I could go about my normal life and it just might work, I, I jumped at it. And, um, and then two months into my trial when I was taking this weekly pill that had almost no side effects and I had my CT scan, I was deeply discouraged to find out that my tumor had grown by something like 18%. And if it grew beyond 20% from the original diagnosis, then I'd be kicked off the trial and I'd immediately have to start my chemotherapy. And that would mean an end to all my travel. But anyway, between the time when I was diagnosed and when I had that CT scan, Gracie and I were able to start the first module of our certificate in transformational ministry at the margins in all these places. And so our second module was going to take place in January. But my oncologist said, you know, no, you're, um, you're going to have to get ready to start chemo. You know, this is obviously not working. Um, next CT scan is going to show um, that it, the tumor's grown beyond 20%. And so you're going to, I, I recommend that you start chemo right away at the beginning of the year. And, um, but there's a voice inside of me that was just like, you know, no. How would, it, how would God have allowed us and opened the door for us to start all these trainings and, and then just have us cancel all the rest of the trainings? And I just, I just couldn't accept it. And I, I felt this, of, I don't know, I, I went into a deep prayer mode and, and began to, you know, to practice all kinds of, uh, you know, just like I got a lot of people to intercede for us. I, I began taking, I felt led to take communion every night. And I, um, and I was just praying, Jesus, what do I do? You know, um, I was praying in every way that I knew how. Should I, should I just accept this and do what the doctor tells me and cancel these trainings? And I remember um, just this peace coming over me and the sense that, um, well, I had a CT scan that was going to tell me whether the tumor had grown uh, beyond 20%, and which would mean that I'd have to I'd be kicked off this trial and I couldn't take this clinical trial drug and I'd have to go into chemotherapy. Um, and so I had, um, you know, like it was like three or four days prior to the CT scan that would tell me that the news one way or the other, that I felt 
clearly, like in my spirit, I felt like God was saying, no, um, make your plans, take your trip, you know, go um, teach in the UK, and then uh, my normal Westminster Theological Center training, and then go to Morocco, you know, go to Tanzania, go to, um, to Paris, do these trainings, go for it, go for it, go for it. It was kind of like, um, pick up your pallet and walk. And um, so I bought my tickets. You know, Gracie and I both discerned together that we should just take this risk. So I bought my tickets before I had the results. And uh, this was difficult too, because some of our partners in the UK, they were saying, um, they were they were canceling some of the trainings that we had. We had a training in Bristol as well. And they were uh, telling people, we're probably not gonna have the training because Bob's gonna have to start chemo. And I remember just thinking, oh, you know, Look, I I uh, I just really feel like I'm supposed to come, and um, and so I bought my tickets, um, you know, bought tickets for Gracie and I, and made the plans, and went in for my CT scan, and the CT scan showed that the tumor had not grown um, anymore; it had kind of stayed right at eighteen percent. So the oncologist said, "Well, you don't have to start chemo; you can stay on the clinical trial, but I really think that when you come back at the end of January, beginning of February." You're going to have to just be prepared to start chemo because uh, normally we only see breakthroughs in these uh, in these trials with this particular drug in the first two or three months. So the fact that it's grown shows that it's probably not working, and it's just a fluke that it didn't grow, um, you know, and, and that we weren't ha have to having to take you off the trial now. So when you come back, I'm scheduling you for another biopsy of the of the tumor just to make sure that if the tumor, if the cancer is, has morphed into something more aggressive, you know, we're going to be ready right away to just launch you into, you know, full-on chemotherapy. So um, I knew I had a CT scan plan. And then the following day, a, um, a needle biopsy. And then um, the oncologist was, was pretty certain that I was going to have to start chemo. But anyway, during that month that I was traveling, Gracie and I were traveling, we taught our missions course for Westminster Theological Center in, in UK, in Telford. Then we, we went to Paris and did our, our CTMM module two on inner healing deliverance and physical healing. Then we went down to, um, you know, to Morocco and to Tanzania and we did our training. So we were gone a whole month and came back and um, went in to, you know, to get the biopsy. And it was, uh, it was just really interesting because I had a guy from New Zealand who was visiting us and he actually joined me to go into the hospital, you know, and sit with me while I was having the biopsy. And so he was a witness to this um, miracle, really, that felt like a miracle when the top radiologist for the University of Washington came in and said, hey, we're canceling the biopsy because your CT scans show that your tumor has shrunk by 50%. And I just... I cried. I, I just couldn't even believe it. It was such a, you know, beautiful piece of news. And my oncologist was the next week shocked and just said, you know, what did you do? How did this happen? He's, he'd never seen that rapid of a turnaround. In one month, the tumor shrunk by 50%. And then from then on, it just was all downhill. The tumor sh shrunk down within the next couple months. And it's only um, like 10% now. And it's considered just be scar tissue. So I experienced something like um, well, do you want to be well? I clearly did. And, um, you know, buy your tickets and go on your trip. And, and, and I, and I did that and the, the tumor shrunk 
and uh, as a result of of of, Jesus, of God's healing action through the prayers of of many Africans and French and English people, all the people everywhere we went, we were prayed for, and it was it was just amazing. And what was interesting is that in a lot of ways Jesus told me to break the rules, and that's what we see happening here because um, it says now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, and the Jews here represent the religious establishment, you know, the people that were, you know, bound to following the, the laws of Moses and who believed that that Israel, the people of God, needed to be, you know, really, really honoring um, the words of the Torah in a, in a serious, serious way. And so since they were occupied by the Roman army, they were prone to just be even more legalistic than normal because they wanted to make sure that they were doing everything possible so that God would um, grant them, you know, grant them victory over the Romans. And so often, you know, when people are really, um, are really in a place of great desperation and, and oppression, you know, we're prone to, to try to be the rule followers to the max. And anyway, so the, these guys, they, um, they see the man walking with his, um, you know, with his, his mattress on the Sabbath, and they say, hey, it's the Sabbath. It's like this, you know, the police lights go on and um, they stop him and they come over and they begin writing him up, writing a ticket. Um, they say, it's not permissible. It's against the law for you to carry your pallet. Um, so interestingly, the man's response is, um, the one who made me well is the one who said, pick up your pallet and walk. So this guy rats on Jesus and you know, blames him and, um, or attributes actually the healing to, to, to Jesus. Like this man is basically saying, look, um, God told me, you know, um, he didn't know that it was God though. He just, he just knew that this unknown man, um, came to him there at the, sh at the sheep pool, you know, at Bethesda and, um, asked him if he wanted to be well, and then told him to pick up his pallet and walk. And, um, and they asked him, well, who is the man who said, do you pick up your pallet and walk? And uh, the man who was healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Well, interestingly, you know, when we hear something from God, we don't always know for sure that it's coming from Jesus, coming from the Father, coming from the Holy Spirit. We, we have um, a sense, we get a prompting. I got this prompting that I should buy my tickets prior to... Um, getting the results of the CT scan, which that would have been the prudent, um, you know, actually medically uh, law abiding thing to do, wouldn't it? To do what my oncologist said, to wait until I got the results and to do the conservative thing to, you know, to go f get myself ready, cancel my trip and get ready to have to do chemo to save my life, you know, from the tumor become, which may have become more aggressive you know, uh, taking me out in some way. But uh, was it God? You know, was it the Father um, who prompted me, who, who spoke into my heart and said, buy your tickets and go and make your plans to go in, on the trip? And and uh, I believe it was. And, um, and so that may be an important indicator for us uh, that we're hearing the voice of God. The, the Spirit really may very well ask us to do something that is not kosher, that is 
that is that breaks a certain protocol that breaks the rules. Um, I think about Gracie when we first went. Second time we went to New Zealand, we were. It was. Um, it was actually in. Um, in two thousand. 18 or 2009, 2018, we were getting ready to go and we'd flown down to San Francisco and we were, um, you know, we were, we got off the plane in San Francisco and, and I remember asking someone from United, where is the Air New Zealand um, ticketing counter or, you know, the, the gate? And some, two people behind us, a man behind us uh, said, oh, we're going to New Zealand. Um, can we follow you? And so I, I turned around and saw these two men, two two people, a couple, um, about our age maybe, and a little bit older, and they had an accent from another country. And we said, "Oh, come join us." And I asked where they were from, and they said, "Oh, we're from Afghanistan, but we're living in Seattle, and we're on our way to Australia, but we go through New Zealand." So I said, "Oh, yeah." And we walked along, and as we were um, walking, um, I Gracie and I learned that they were that they were Muslims. And, um, you know, they were uh, Shia Muslims and they were, had both fled Afghanistan and um, were actually doctors. He had worked in the medical school in Kabul and she was a gynecologist and they'd fled. And when they crossed, um, I mean, really risking their lives to get into Pakistan and ended up in the refugee camp. And when the refugee camp uh, organizers found out they were medical people. They put them to work as doctors there in the refugee camp where they served for a number of years in a United Nations refugee camp. And then eventually they were granted asylum in Canada and then made their way to the United States. So I was learning these things and I remember just feeling so apologetic. I said, you know, I'm so sorry for what um, our country has done and is still doing in Afghanistan you know, the United States was still very active at that time. And, uh, and the man just shook his head and he said, yes, um, if people only knew just how awful, just how devastating war is. And I was like, yeah. And so meanwhile, Gracie was walking along with, with this man's wife and, and she was kind of limping and Gracie, uh, felt prompted to, to ask her, well, you know, what's wrong with, you know, what, um, do you have, are you in pain? And she was like, oh yeah, I have this chronic pain all through my bones. Um, I have osteopenia. And right then Gracie felt this prompting, this, this like uh, word, like pray for her to be healed. And she was like, oh, you know, in her, in her mind, she was thinking, well, I, I can't do that. I can't pray for her to be healed. For one thing, she's a, she has, she's a Shia Muslim. And, um, I'm a Christian and that would be insensitive to just, I don't want to impose my uh, desire to pray for her to be healed on her. And, and so Gracie was resisting and we walked along, we got to the gate and then, um, you know, we parted company. We went into some kind of a lounge and had some dinner and there in the lounge, um, we, we ran into them again. And, and Gracie felt this prompting, um, aren't you going to pray for her healing? And she just ignored it. And, um, and then again, outside the lounge, um, we ran into them, I think two more times. And then finally, Gracie was just like, okay, God, um, if they sit near us on the plane, then maybe I'll, then I'll pray for them. So then we got on the plane, we boarded and, um, these people were sitting like three or four aisles 
uh, ahead of us to the left. And so Gracie, Gracie commented and said, well, I said if, if they sat close to us. And, um, and so, you know, the prompting, though, of the, of the spirit, which was, you know, to tell her, um, I mean, maybe the, the question was, do you want to, do you want to pray for healing, Gracie? You know, do you want to, do you want to see healing? That might have been the voice of God to Gracie at that point. But, but the other voice was, aren't you going to pray for her healing? And so Gracie wasn't sure that she did want to pray for her healing. Um, but, but really she did. She was just afraid and she wanted to be sensitive. So there we were, we were, um, there was the final call and, um, going in after 12, 13 hour flight into Auckland, we were beginning to descend and Gracie went to use the restroom and there, um, in line, she ran straight into, um, this woman and it was like, she said, Oh no, there she is. (laughs) And so, um, what was she going to do? And, um, so anyway, Gracie was talking with her about this and that. And, and there was someone in the bathroom that was taking an awfully long time. And then right then, um, there was an announcement for everyone to get to their seats and, um, put on their seatbelts and get ready for the, you know, for coming down for landing. And so Gracie thought, okay, this is the moment when I, I just have to go for it. So she said to the woman, um, I bless you to be healed. And she didn't even mention um, the name of Jesus, which interestingly, in this story, Jesus never introduces himself to this man. He never says, hey, um, I'm Jesus, by the way. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that uh, God has sent his only son uh, into the world to save the world? Like it says earlier in John three sixteen. you know, Jesus doesn't uh, um, identify himself in any way or require the man to make any kind of confession of faith or to confess his sins or to do anything. He just says, do you want to be healed? And, um, but in this case, uh, you know, Gracie already knew that the woman was really in pain and was worried about, you know, being on vacation for a few weeks and having to be in pain when she walked around all over Australia. And so Gracie went for it, but didn't mention the name of Jesus. And then asked the woman, so how is the pain? And the woman said, the pain? Um, there's no pain. And Gracie said, well, I thought you said you were in constant pain. And she goes, well, I was until you um, blessed me to be healed. And then I felt like all the pain just went out my arms and was gone. And Gracie was just like shocked. And uh, and then immediately um, just uh, said, well, wow, that's just beautiful. That's great. And and then she had to take her seat. And, uh, but she said to me, well, Bob, um, if, if there's still time, do you think you could just go and talk to them and just see if that's, if I understood right, rightly? So um, really quickly, um, and I probably wasn't supposed to do this. I was breaking the rules. And of course, Gracie had broken her own rules about, you know, praying for a Muslim without, um, you know, without even explaining anything or without using the name of Jesus and, you know, it felt in a way like she was transgressing, I think, which is why it was hard for her to, you know, to to pray. And she didn't pray. She just blessed the woman. Um, so anyway, I jumped jumped up and quickly went down the other aisle to where they were and came over to the man. And the man was like, thank you so much. Thank your wife. My My wife is healed. All the pain is gone. And the woman was just like, all emotional and they were shaking their heads and 
thanking me profusely. And uh, so I went back and, um, and then they were waiting for us when we got off the plane and we, and they were, they were, the woman was completely pain-free and uh, we exchanged addresses. And, and then when we came back to Seattle, um, like maybe a, a month afterwards, we contacted them because they, they were back from their vacation and they invited us to this beautiful Af Afghan meal where we uh, debriefed the whole situation. The woman was still healed and had had a wonderful trip without any pain in her body. And we, um, Gracie explained to her her hesitancy about praying and um, and how she didn't want, you know, to assume anything because she was uh, of a different faith. And the woman said, no, you know, we are so open. We're open to other religions and, you know, we're open to Jesus. And so that was a, a real lesson for us. And, and so this story is a story that I think um, can apply to us, right? Like, how do we hear? And um, I mean, are we paying attention when, when the spirit is moving, when the father is showing us something that, that the father wants to do? Because we're uh, those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, were given authority to become children of God you know, who are born, um, you know, born from above. And that's how we see the kingdom is, is being born again, being born from above and coming into our identity as sons and daughters, a son or a daughter of the father. And so we're meant to read these stories as um, including us and in, in putting ourselves in the place of Jesus. That's perhaps why the disciples are absent from the story. It's just Jesus. And, um, and so we're meant to identify with the singular character of Jesus in these encounters, I believe. And so if we can learn how to hear for ourselves, um, like uh, in, in the place of the man who's been ill for 38 years, if we can hear Jesus um, speak words that would free us, you know, to, uh, to do something that we maybe would, would find impossible. Um, that's a training ground for us um, to be able to engage in the ministry of Jesus in a way that is like what he what he did in this story. And um, so I just love this, how Jesus um, has slipped away um, while there was a crowd in that place. So there was something shy and very humble about Jesus, which, uh, and, you know, like a guerrilla warrior, war, you know, warrior who's, you know, who's a clandestine, you know, sort of character who's kind of slipping in and slipping out. Um, he found the man in the first place at the sheep gate. And afterwards, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple. So interestingly, um, the man ends up at the feast. Um, the man who had, was formerly disqualified from being at the feast because of his illness and inca incapability of even going there, um, goes to the feast and Jesus finds him. So first he finds him you know, outside of the margins. Now he finds him right at the center. And Jesus says to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Um, this is an incredible word um, once again. And, and we may hear the spirit saying that to ourselves, you know, when um, in the aftermath of, of God doing a liberating action on our behalf, um, I think this should alert us to the possibility that that God's grace is not cheap grace, that, you know, that Jesus is a physician and 
he's giving us remedies and he's, and he's telling us to change our way of living so that our, our life will, you know, will go better, you know, so that we'll stay free, so that we'll be healthy. And this is also indicator that we may also be prompted to say something like that as well. One thing that's so amazing to me about this is that um, there's kind of an assumption that the man was, um, you know, was still sinning even up to this point, because he's saying, don't sin any longer. And um, which means that Jesus healed him while he was a sinner and, you know, found him two times while he was a sinner. And then, um, and then afterwards, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So he, you know, he ratted on Jesus a second time, but this time giving, you know, the law enforcers uh, details about his identity. And then it says that the, the, the consequences of that were that for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So, you know, Jesus is likely to, you know, to ask uh, to, to do things in a way that are, um, you know, that stir things up, to ask us to do things also that would go against the, the status quo, that would go against the norm, against the rules, and, um, you know, for our own healing, and to challenge us and to speak to us words that, where we might need to challenge others to break the rules as well. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So Jesus identifies him, his father, you know, the, um, his, you know, the, his God, our God, as uh, my father. And we're invited to, to speak about our, our God the same way as my father and, um, and to engage in the same sorts of, of clandestine and rule-breaking activities uh, on behalf of, of other people and um, perhaps also on behalf of ourselves. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that's the risk that we uh, also are, you know, are called to take is to identify ourselves with God in such a way that, that we look like we're making ourselves equal to Jesus. And, um, and if Jesus says greater things you will do than I have done because I go to the father, Jesus himself is, um, I guess he's, he's telling us in advance and um, he's alerting us to um, a life of actions that, uh, that may look even, um, even more extreme than what we see him doing in the Gospels. So may we really um, receive this, uh, this teaching and these words and open ourselves to the living word of God that um, that's addressing our own, you know, need to be well, and also challenging us to, you know, to to speak to others, and to engage in the healing and liberating movement of Jesus. Really, just like he did, as sons and daughters of the Father. <laughs>